Greetings from Covenant Community of LJ, Georgia. We want to thank you for taking the time to listen to these messages God has provided to our fellowship from His Word. May He bless you richly as you seek Him. We'd like to invite you to be with us in person someday soon. And for information on that, visit us at covenantcommunitylj.com. And now, let's open up God's Word. You guys sounded a lot better after you got coached up a little bit. Yes. That was awesome. <laughs> Thanks for that. It's good, right? We, we need reminders sometimes. We need reminders sometimes of what God has done for us. Because we are people that are so forgetful. We are people that are so easily distracted. I mean, everything's flashing light. You know, we're just, we're just like that. That's how we're made. That's how we're wired. We're finite people and perspective is something that we struggle with. And that's what the message is about today. And I think, you know, it's a great example of what just happened a moment ago. We need reminders in our life that draw out the goodness of God to remember the faithfulness of God. And today we're going to look in Joshua chapter 4 at the scene where you see Joshua and the Israelites. As Steve preached, they've crossed the Jordan, which is this beautiful thing. But... There's this other thing that they do. They set up these 12 stones as a monument. And as we look at this, we're going to look at what that meant, how to, how to work that into our lives, what that means for us. And I hope that by the end of this message, we'll be able to look back and see what God intended us to see, that we'll see Christ, we'll see the faithfulness of God, we'll see his goodness, but we'll also have an example for our own lives. That our lives could be a memorial, a testimony to God in the same way that these 12 stones were. And uh, this applies to our family, so moms and dads, aunts, uncles, uh, grandparents, everybody. If you've got godparents or it's complicated and I don't have the right term for it, it doesn't matter. But this, uh, this works in our families. I, I had this beautiful opportunity this morning. Uh, Jennifer and I are having some, you know, we, we some painting in our house and... Oh my goodness, the, the fumes are unbelievable. And Jennifer's pretty sensitive to that stuff with her migraines and things like that. So we had to move out. And so uh, we had to, to sleep in her, her parents' house. And they put us up. And the whole family's there for Thanksgiving. It was super cute. And my, my little niece, her name is Ella. And she came in and she was one of the first ones up this morning. And it was basically just me and her in the kitchen. And I've got my stuff out looking over my notes. And she's like, what you doing? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, she's a little, you know, she doesn't always remember all the stuff that goes on in all of our lives, you know. So I'm like, well, I'm preaching this morning. I'm going to talk about Jesus. And uh, so she and I just got this cute little conversation. I'm not a dad. I don't have kids. But here I am in these moments with this next generation. And we have this great conversation. So wherever you're at, I hope your ears will be perked up. This is going to be good. We get to see how God is teaching them through this. So let's set the stage a little bit. Last week, crossing the Jordan is like this epic fulfillment of this promise that was made generations earlier. I mean, quick recap. You remember Abraham, and forgive me if you're new to the Old Testament or not studied it, and some of this feels like I'm flying over your head. Don't worry, I will slow down in a second. But for those of you who've read some of this, you see way back, God makes this promise to Abraham that he's going to make a great nation out of him. He promises that he's going to take him to a land that he'll show him. And he's going to provide this, this beautiful land for him to inhabit, and that his his seed will turn into a multitude that will live in that land. And so we get to see it, you know, in the book of Genesis, you get to see Abraham, <coughs> Isaac, Jacob, and eventually Joseph, which gets led off into to Egypt. And God turns a really ugly story into a really beautiful one and brings the people of God there. But after leadership changes in 400 years, they become enslaved by the Egyptians and uh, the tide kind of turns against them. But God hears the cry of the people and calls Moses who, that, what an amazing story. I wish we had time to go back there. But you see him born in a, basically in an Israelite family, but raised by an Egyptian family. But he never forgets who he was. At the age of 40, he, he begins to step in to be the deliverer, but he does it in his own strength without really thinking and murders a man. And then Pharaoh finds out, puts a bounty on his head. He has to flee. And God puts the man who's going to lead a multitude of people out of the wilderness between Egypt. And the promised land, he teaches him to be a shepherd right in Midian, right in between, where he's going to shepherd lots of living things out in the wilderness for 40 years. Pretty beautiful, right? So eventually he'd be the one that would shepherd God's people 
out there, and eventually that's what happened. And, and you see, there were the ten plagues that God used to set them free. And, and eventually they, they basically loot Egypt, they take gold and all these things with them. They go out and they, they, they leave to go and worship God, but the Egyptians have a change of heart and chase them. You remember the parting of the Red Sea, and, and God begins to lead them. And, of course, guard them. And as they cross over the Red Sea, it closes up on the pursuing Egyptian army, wipes out Pharaoh and his army. And here they stand on the other side of the bank, free and clear, ready to go to the promised land. And God gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them so many different signs and wonders. Gives them water out of a rock. Gives them manna uh, every morning to eat quail when they got hungry for some meat. I can identify with that. And he led them by... A pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. These people saw God at work constantly. They heard the voice of God. They stood in front of a fiery mountain and said, we will serve you. We will obey you. These are people that saw the wonders and miracles and miraculous deeds of God more so than any nation. But when they finally got right up to the brink of the promised land, right up to the edge, they panicked. They saw these walled cities guarded by giants and fear crept in and they bailed out they got scared and so God banished them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for that generation of elders to die off and a new generation to be raised up and that's where we kind of got to where we were crossing the Jordan where it's a whole different generation of people where they've been to a lot of funerals they've seen a lot of people pass away a whole generation has been gone except for Joshua and Caleb and their shoes you know, shoes didn't wear out. That's kind of interesting. But we see how God had led them even in the wilderness. But wow, they've been through a lot. This is a whole different generation. There may have been a few kids who had crossed the, the Red Sea themselves that were maybe in their 50s in this moment. But can you imagine that group of people who heard the stories of how they were too scared to cross over into the Jordan? Can you imagine the excitement when they actually did cross the Jordan? This generation that had heard the epic tales of how, man, we just, we wish we would have just gone in, felt like God would have protected us, but we were scared, and they wandered in the wilderness, and they heard of the time that would come eventually when God would lead them into the promised land, and they grew up decade after decade wondering about what this would be like, and all of a sudden, they're literally standing on the bank on the west side now of the Jordan, just a couple of miles away, I think maybe just a few, like three to six miles away from, from Jericho, where they would eventually end up. This is a crazy, epic moment. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God had made. Here are the people of Israel standing in the promised land together, and they're ready to move in, and we see this. So I'm going to read this passage to you, and then we're going to make you uh, just like four observations that we can apply to our life with this. So, so let's look at this in Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. It says, when all the nation, I guess before I should read this, I should say that this, this whole chapter could have been very brief, like four or five sentences, but it repeats itself. So don't kind of get confused. I'll help you through it, but uh, he could have just simplified this very simply, but he, he wants to emphasize some of these things, and you see that happening. So anyway, continue. So it says, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people. From each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst, or the middle of the Jordan, from the very place where your priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Uh, just in case you weren't here last week, when they crossed the Jordan, the water stood as it normally did until the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant stepped into the water. And then God held the water back, allowed it to go on, and they crossed on dry land. But while they were crossing, the Ark of the Covenant stood right there in the middle the entire time. And the people hurried across in panic, but the priests stood confidently holding the Ark of God in the middle of the Jordan River while the people crossed. And so it was kind of a cool moment where the people of God passed right before the Ark of God, maybe just a few feet in front of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a pretty, pretty intense moment. So that's, that's the scene that helps you understand what happened there. So Joshua responds in verse 4. It says, Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to him, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. 
And take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Let's continue in verse 8. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now I should pause here for a second because, you know, you may have read this and, and only think about one set of stones. And that's the set of stones that the 12 men from the 12 tribes put on their shoulders and they're carrying with them to the next place that they're going to camp, which will be Gilgal. And they're going to take that with them. But we see in this one sentence, Joshua also sets up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan from right there where the priests stood. And that's what it's making mention of there in verse 9. We'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. In verse 10, it says, For the priests bearing the ark stood in the middle of the Jordan until everything was finished. I think that's a cool sentence. And you see what I'm talking about later. It was finished. <laughs> That the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste, in verse 11. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passing over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. And so Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up onto dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said before the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know that Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Isn't that awesome? So we see they cross the Jordan, and we spent a good amount of time with that last week, but this is kind of nestled in with that story. But I want to focus on this whole bit with these 12 stones and what they, they mean to us, and, and, and what are we supposed to learn from this. And, and I'll give you four things that I think are really, really important. The first one is this. The 12 stones were a reminder of the faithfulness of God. The 12 stones were a reminder of the faithfulness of God. You see, there's a lot of reasons they could have set up a monument here. They could have set up one for Joshua. They could have set up one to themselves. They could have set up one for a lot of different reasons. But this monument was there to point back to the faithfulness of God. you got to remember, long time, hundreds of years prior to this, God made a promise to Abraham, and God kept his promise. The promise they read all this time had now been fulfilled, and here they are standing on the west side of the border border of the Jordan, and they set up the monument to God for fulfilling his promise. He was faithful to do what he said he would do, and they set up a monument to sort of celebrate that. It was not a monument to them. They were keenly aware that they didn't deserve to get the cross. I mean, let's just look back at the history of all this. The behavior of the Israelites was pretty frustrating, right? 
I mean, even while God's given them the Ten Commandments, they're down making idols and, and worshiping Baals and creating a golden calf while they're receiving the Ten Commandments. I mean, God is communing with Moses, and he's everywhere all the time. He knows what's going on. He's giving Moses the Ten Commandments while they're casting a golden calf. Like, the behavior of the Israelites is kind of frustrating, right? And when we look back at all these different moments and we see... You know, the, the way that they behaved and the way that they forgot and the way they complained and all these things. Listen, this was not a monument to the faithfulness of the Israelites. This was a monument to the faithfulness of God who kept his covenant in spite of the fact that they disobeyed him, in spite of the fact that they complained, in spite of the fact that they lost faith, in spite of the fact that they sometimes got deceived, in spite of the fact that he knew that they were going to go into the promised land and still continue sinning and still continue this, this frustrating behavior at times. This was a monument to say God has fulfilled what he has promised. What he said he would do, he would do, and he did it because he is good. He did it because he has made a covenant with us. It's not something we earn. Our behavior earned us wrath, but God has offered us mercy. God has offered us grace. He's faithful in spite of us. And we always think about this in, in light of where we are now as we look back at what God has done in our life. It's easy for us to feel the pressure of sort of maintaining our salvation. But that pressure shouldn't be there. God is the one who has maintained that salvation. God is the one who has saved us. God is the one that's going to keep his covenant with us. God is the one who has been faithful. He has saved you. And you ought to celebrate that and rejoice in that and find comfort and peace in that. And you should also find, this is, this is beautiful, you should also find that that same grace that saved you is the grace that transforms you and causes you to want to step out and respond in obedience, not in rebellion. To respond in submission rather than willfulness. To respond in obedience, okay, Rather than do whatever I want to do, because when we look at the cross, when we look at Christ has done for us, it transforms our hearts. It causes us to desire to be obedient. It may mean that we lose some battles, but we're pursuing Christ. And we see that God is the one who's faithful that saved you. But here's this crazy thought. Still, as you walk into this and we see the rest of the story as they cross over into the promised land, the, the, the extent that they kept their faith in the strength and faithfulness of God is the extent with which they experience the blessings of God. Because several times they got their eyes on themselves. Several times they got to thinking, I got this. Several times they began to feel stronger than they were. They began to take credit for what God was doing, so to speak, and felt their own personal confidence and began to distance them. They did not inquire of the Lord. They didn't ask him to go with them. And they step out on their own. And in each case, you see defeat. And in those places, they return back to Gilgal. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. And we're reminded in the same way in our lives, God knows that you will fail. God knows that, that there's a chance you will be deceived again in your life, even as you've come to Christ. But we need a monument in our life that proves that God is faithful. In the very same way, these 12 stones reminded that the, the Israelites that God is faithful. And, you know, not to say any of this for a big ending to this. Hopefully you know this already. That monument to us is the death and resurrection and glorification of Jesus Christ. We can look back and we see on the cross the faithfulness of God. We see in his resurrection the faithfulness of God. We see in his glorification the, or the, the, the faithfulness of God. Nowhere in any of those actions do we see the faithfulness of man. Nowhere do we see how much we earned it or deserved it or, or gained that. That is a work that God has done. He deserves all the glory, all the praise. We ought to bow down before him, as we just said, and worship. And when you get to heaven, that's going to be the most natural thing for you to do. When you see the faithfulness of God, it's never going to feel like work. We're just going to bow down before Jesus Christ, who has rescued us. This incredible monument to the faithfulness of God. He is Jesus. And back then, they needed 12 stones, 12 rocks to remind them. We have the rock to remind us. And we stand in him and we stand on him. Changes everything. When waters rush around you and your life is feeling crazy, but you're literally standing in the middle of the Jordan River, the waters are creeping up and you can get washed away at any moment. We don't look to our own strength. We look to the faithfulness of God who was able to do the impossible. Not because we're worth it, but because 
He is, and He's glorious and good and amazing. He desires to know us and has made a way for us. It's so beautiful. And all He does is rescue and save. He's so beautiful. Even in His discipline, we find His love and His rescue. For those of us who are in Christ, it's a beautiful thing. The second thing I want to point you to is this. The 12 stones, <laughs> we've already got ahead, point to Jesus and his work on the cross. But I want to show you, not just from an analogy, but I want you to see that this is what God intended you to see in this passage. The 12 stones point to Jesus and his work on the cross. You see, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant that was in the middle of the, the, the Jordan represented the presence of God. And it was beautiful. Steve brought this out last week. Hopefully you caught it. But on the top of that is the mercy seat where the priest, the high priest, would sprinkle the blood on it for the remission of sins. And that's part of God's covenant that he made with them. And so literally in the middle of the Jordan, you see this picture. That was a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who was to come, who is Jesus, right? That was a foreshadowing, the blood of bulls and goats in Hebrews, it tells us, had to be repeated because it was just a picture of what was to come, the reality that was in heaven. This was a foreshadowing of Christ. They looked ahead to Christ. We look back to Christ. But in every case, all of God's people have always looked to the Redeemer. They didn't know exactly what his name would be. They didn't know how to look for him 100%. But they were looking ahead to the Messiah. They were looking ahead to Christ in the same way we look back to Christ. But this is a picture of Christ, literally the presence of God. We see the picture of the mercy seat holding back the waters of the Jordan so that they were able to cross from an old life into a new life. Do you see this? Isn't it beautiful? It is good, isn't it? You've heard this in two weeks in a row. <laughs> hopefully, you're, hopefully you're getting this far. So Joshua goes in and he gathers 12 stones. Right there where all the, the ark is. And he gathers up those and stacks them up right in the middle of the Jordan. And the author of this, which we believe was Joshua, but later on in life said they were still there to this day. And we see some testimony of that later on uh, with John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan, remembering that. Pretty neat. We'll get to that later. But I think God really does want you to see this connection. And, I, and we get the dates in this passage. Whenever you get dates in Scripture, it's kind of cool to look at them. This is actually four days before Passover. Isn't that interesting? Guess what you're supposed to do the four days before Passover? You're supposed to select a spotless lamb and put it in your home with you for four days before you kill it. And the first Passover, before they would put the blood on the door and the angel of the Lord passed over them, withholding judgment, did not take the firstborn son. This is four days before Passover. And the Lamb of God is in the middle of the Jordan doing what he does. Isn't that beautiful? And he says, I want you to take these 12 stones out of the middle of the Jordan. I want you to put that right in the middle of your camp where you're going for the next four days. I think this is cool. And they set up these 12 stones. And later you'll see it when we get to Gilgal. We won't do it this, this week. But you see in Gilgal they celebrate Passover four days later. And these 12 stones are right there in their camp as a monument to how God has brought them in there. Isn't that beautiful? God's word is so amazing. I'm telling you, if you struggle with doubt, if you struggle with not being sure if the word of God is from God, if it's just something that man made, I'm telling you, you got to study it. You got to go a little bit deeper than the surface. When you begin to dig into this, you're going to see that this is the word of God is living and active. It's beautiful and it points to Christ in ways that we don't always even see on the surface. And when you begin to dig into it, you're going to see your Savior on every page. And he's going to bring you into a place where you're going to worship him. The, the, the scripture is like these 12 stones in our life. It just continues to point us back, but we'll continue on. So it's here, after Israel crosses the Jordan, that you see this, that where they mention that it's four days before Passover, it brings those stones into the camp. So what does this mean for us? I think, I think you see later on this Lamb of God, this, this beautiful symmetry in the Word of God. You see, Jesus, and right before he begins his ministry out into the world, his first stop is to go out to the voice calling in the wilderness, John the Baptist, who was baptizing in, you guessed it, the Jordan River, right? Same Jordan River. And he's baptizing, in the, he baptized thousands. I mean, we don't know how many he baptized while he was there. But before Jesus began his first ministry, his public ministry, 
he goes and is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. He literally goes into the Jordan, goes under the Jordan, and is raised back up out of the Jordan, and the Holy Spirit approves. It comes like a dove and lands upon him. And the Spirit of God, no, the voice of the Father, yells out, this is my son of whom I'm well pleased. Isn't that beautiful? And you see this moment where everything changes. But, well, let me read you this part first. In John 12, 24, Jesus, speaking of his death, said this. And this is, this is what baptism means. Uh, he's, he's told us that he is going to die, but he's also told us that we share in this. And I, I want to make sense of this. In John 12, 24, it says, actually 23, start off, it says, Jesus replies, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. You see, Romans 6 tells us that just as Christ died, we who are in Christ died with him. And just as Christ raised, we who are in Christ also raised with him. Now you have to be in Christ to participate in that. And you get to be in Christ by putting your faith in the work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and glorification, that he paid the penalty for your sin so that you could experience his reward. He took your punishment so you could experience his reward, and, and not in your own strength trying to earn your way to heaven, but by confessing and coming in repentance and asking God to forgive you of your sin and placing your faith in his work rather than your work. God will and can save you. And he puts his Holy Spirit in you. He transforms you, makes you a new creation, guarantees you a beautiful spot, a wonderful place in heaven where you'll be able to worship him forever and see him face to face. It's, a, it's, a, it's better than any Black Friday deal you found. <laughs> and it sure beats Cyber Monday. It's what you need to be Googling this week. Is it? Well, don't Google it. Who knows what you'll find. Come see us. We'll <laughs> you to, to Scripture. And in all this, you see, that those of us who've done that, who are in Christ, who've become his children, we are in Christ. We are in his death, and we died with him, Romans 6 tells But we also are raised with him into a whole new life. And this is crucial that we realize this. This is what it means. When we, want, when we desire to walk with him, in the same way that Christ died, we must die. In the same way that he was raised, we must raise C.S. Lewis made a great point. Anything that's not died in you can't be raised again. I thought that was a great point. He's also, also very poetic. But we understand that God's, God brings us to that place of, of, of death. Now, I'll read you this quote. This is actually really interesting. Before I do, let me read you Paul's mentioning of this. He talks about how this plays out in our life. In Galatians 2.20, it's a familiar passage. I hope you know it. If you don't memorize this, it's awesome. It says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When God showed up, when the Son showed up and revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, some stuff changed inside of Paul that never went back. He was transformed. And the old Paul died, so much so that his name wasn't even Paul before, it was Saul. The old Saul ceases to exist, and Paul begins to live in his place. In the very same way, that's what God intends to do in our lives. We look back at that moment when you came to Christ and that day hasn't come yet. I pray today will be the day. But if you, if you have come to Christ, you can look back at that moment, and you'll see that that began a moment of transformation a process of transformation that continues today that's not over yet. God's still not done with you yet, but something shifted, something changed that day. It's never been the same. doesn't mean you've never sinned again. doesn't mean you've never been deceived again, but it does mean that you were transformed and God is continuing to work that process in your life. And we see that. God says that we are crucified with him so that we no longer live. The old Eric is dead. He is seriously dead. I don't need him anymore. I need Christ living through me. 
The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God. As he loved me and gave himself for me. And this is real living. This is real living. Not, not death. And, and, and God says to die to self. To deny ourself. And, and you should get this. That's not a rejection of everything that you are. Because the cool thing is that God loves you. He created you and he made you. It's not a rejection of, of who you are. It's a rejection of, of sin and the reign of the flesh in our life and understanding that our old life is gone. It's, it's looking back and saying, all of my dreams, and this is going to sound bad at first, just hang with me. All of my dreams, all of my hopes, all of my desires, all of my you know, curiosities and, and things that I want to do in my life for me and all the pursuits that I had laid out, the pattern, the timelines, the projects, all this stuff that I had put in front of me, I come up to it. And I just drive a stake right into its heart and say, that is gone. And the only thing I'm going to take with me on the other side of the door is you. And I want you to replace those desires, those goals, those pursuits, those things in my life that I put there. I want you to replace them with what you want there. And it's very much a death in some sense. But here's what you need to know as, as you step out in, in faith. It's the same reason why the, the, the Israelites were terrified to go to battle at Jericho. It's the same reason why the first 40 years prior, they said, no, we don't want to go in. It's impossible. It's because we're afraid that God won't come through, that somehow the outcome is going to work out in a terrible, terrible way. We're going to be horribly disappointed, and everything's going to go bad from henceforth. God won't show up. It's that fear that God's not going to do the impossible if we step out. But the cool thing is, is that that's not how God works. You give up all those things initially, but you'll be amazed at how much he puts back in your life. And how much that some of those things that were your passions before, God lets you keep. Isn't that beautiful? And God says, yes, use that, but use it to glorify me. Yes, keep that pursuit, but use it for my kingdom. Yes, keep that goal and use it for my good, and, you know. And God says, do all this. Put my kingdom first. Seek it, and I'll add everything else to you. And then as you begin to do that, you see that it is true. It is so true. So we see this, that, that God desires us to see that. So I'll read you the C.S. Lewis quote, I think, and then we'll move on to number three. It says, you got to remember C.S. Lewis. He's kind of flowery and poetic, so hang with me. Keep your concentration. He says, your real new self which is Christ's, and also yours, and yours just because it is his. <laughs> Thanks, C.S. Lewis. Your real new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does, does that sound strange? He said the principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber in your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Isn't that beautiful? Mere Christianity, if you ever want to read it. God wants us to see his faithfulness. He also wants us to, this scene to point to the, the work of Christ on the cross. The third thing I'll tell you quickly is the 12 stones were a reminder for future generations. They were a reminder for future generations. God's got a big picture thing here. It's not just about the individual. It's about the whole deal. And he's wanting to see his work spread. And I'll say it even more when we get to the fourth one. But you see this. And I think the application for us here before I get into this is that we are supposed to. I really believe God, God intends for us to set up markers of God's faithfulness for ourselves and for our families. I really believe that, that God can use those in our lives. And so, if we look back at, at verse 19, we'll reread some of these. It says, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. 
And those 12 stones, which I took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said before the people, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? See? There's stuff there, so they're asking questions. That's a really important thing. Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. I believe God wanted them to set up these because he wanted the 12 stones to remind them of the covenant that God had made with them. Because they were going to need that reminder as they stepped into battle. There were real battles here. We're going to talk about the work that God did in these things, but you will see Israel pick up swords. You will see some of them die in battle. This was not going to... God had promised them a victory. Everywhere you set your foot, you're going to win, but it came at a cost, and it was a challenge. It was difficult when you see it from a, from a national perspective. It wasn't to say everything's going to be easy. It wasn't to say it won't be challenges. You should remember that in your own life as you walk into the life that Christ has for you. When you face your first AI, when you face your first defeat, you need to remember that God is not abandoning you. And that's where these beautiful things are. We go back to Gilgal and we remember the covenant that God made. And we remember that it wasn't because we deserved it. It was because he was faithful. And that renews your heart. And it reminds you that it's not done. That I can go on. That victory can still be here. That God's not done with me because it didn't depend on me to begin with. He's doing this work and I may have delayed it a bit. I may have made a mess of things. But I know that God can bring me where he wants me to be. It may look a little different than it would have if I obeyed him the first time. But God still will be glorified. So I'm going to go and be obedient from here on out. You've got to go back. You've got to see these monuments. So we see that this is a reminder for future generations of. So when you see this, I honestly think God never gets out of his mind this whole generational discipleship thing that we talk about here at our church. It's a huge passion we have here. We believe that God has challenged every generation with discipling generations before him. And when that goes on as a rhythm in a church and we don't lose a generation or two, what you begin to see is this intergenerational discipleship that we're iron sharpens iron and we're able to grow in the way that God's done and lessons that, that others had to learn the hard way. Others don't have to learn the hard way because they can simply listen by faith. And, and it's just beautiful how God works when, when that's what happens, but he intends that to happen in families. So I want to ask this question. Why do we need reminders? I think it's just key in this. And I think it's important to remember because our victory has been won through Christ who established the new covenant that God has made in us, not with our own strength. But here's what we need to remember. Because we, just like the Israelites, will fail tests. We will lose battles. We're going to be deceived. We will sin. But in each case, God disciplines us for our good and for his glory. Probably won't feel like for your good in the moment, but it is. <laughs> You're in Christ. So when we fall, when our faith is tested, we see Joshua return back to Gilgal. We also need to do the same thing. So I'm going to ask you this. Do you have any family reminders? Do you have any personal reminders? I, I can point back to some in my life, some markers in my life that are really uh, beautiful that I've really cherished. One is a Bible that my dad gave me. And uh, it's a crazy thing. I've carried it with me pretty much my whole life. One time I left it in Colorado. Some random couple found it and mailed it back to me. I'm like, thank you, God. I, I recently, right before um, God led me here to Covenant, church I was working at prior, I placed a Bible somewhere, and it, the church ate it. And uh, <laughs> several years went by, but I recently had the chance, like, this was, I guess probably uh, maybe five or six weeks ago. No, I wasn't. Maybe. Actually, Back in Dinao, maybe in the summer, I can't remember, but it wasn't only a few months ago. I was going back to borrow some stuff. I've got friends there. I was going to borrow some stuff we were going to use together. And on a bookshelf, which I had checked before I left, here is that Bible my dad gave me. And y'all, I remember looking at this bookshelf in the back of this church, and I just got this overwhelming feeling. And I started crying. It's just a Bible. It really, I admit it. But that one meant so much to me because my dad gave it to me. He charged me to preach the word and to teach it and to make disciples when he gave it to me. And losing it, I just, oh, it's crushed. And I, I finally found it. It's been rebound, you know, and things like that. I finally found the thing. And you guys, I think I'm probably never leaving my house again. It is going to be right there. 
But I'm so grateful for that because that is a beautiful gift. My father invested in me, and it's not the pages uh, that are so important, but I can also look back and I can see the stuff I highlighted as a teenager. I can see the underlines that I made as a kid uh, when I was digging into the Word, and that's the Bible I preached. I don't know how many students for over 15 years. That Bible has been just on my side. And that thing is a tremendous reminder to me of the faithfulness of God in, from my father in a personal sense, but also in a bigger sense. There's some other things. My dad, um, I've got three journals that are like that. I encourage you if you journal, keep those. It's just a beautiful thing. Uh, I was never journaling that anyone else would find them. I pray no one ever does. But I can go back and look at those journals and I can see where God had led me. And I can see those moments where God was, was calling me out deeper. And I see it, and I'm like, dude, there's like a 16-year-old wrote this. You didn't know what you were giving up. You didn't know what you were saying yes to, buddy. But he said yes anyway. And uh, I remember writing lines like, if, even if I ever change my mind, you, you don't let me. <laughs> you know? He hasn't. He hasn't. He's never let go of me. Sometimes I go kicking and screaming, but he has never let me go. There's one other really beautiful uh, reminder that God gave me that was, that was awesome. When I was in middle school, my dad raised us to walk with Christ, and, and uh, he had challenged us to be obedient to the scriptures and doing it God's way uh, to pursue marriage with one woman and to, to wait for her and remain sexually abstinent until uh, I got married. And I remember being 11 years old and kind of freaked out by that. <laughs> That whole conversation was kind of crazy, but I remember I'll share, I won't give you the long version. I come to my ninth grade health class for that. Um, <laughs> but here's the deal. Um, in that moment, my dad, he began, he, he gave us that you know, awkward conversation. We survived it, blocked that out a little bit. Uh, but I didn't block this out. Um, my dad began to pray for us. And he's, he, he started praying for me. I remember he prayed all these really cool things like, God, I'm my son wise. I'm good. You know, I pray that you provide, you know, for him and make it courageous and strong as you leave him. All these great things. He always prayed for me. It was so beautiful. It wasn't awkward at all, but he prayed for me a lot. And uh, then he shifted gears, though, and he starts praying for this girl. And he's like, you know, he's like, God, I've heard of this young lady that one day, you know, that she would, that you would raise her up and she'd have a godly family and she would grow in the Lord and that she would have character and that she would be strong and that she would love him and she would. And all this other stuff, and I'm like, wow. I'm sitting there listening. I'm like, this girl would not even talk to me right now. <laughs> She's way too cool for me. There's, I got no shot at this girl, Dad. What are you saying? <laughs> oh. But it gave me a picture of what was to come. And my, my dad, uh, after I prayed about it, I still really wanted it. I made that commitment to wait for that girl, whoever she would be. And my dad took me out and bought me like a gold ring. And it, like a, I got picked out like a nugget ring that went out of style like the next day. And I remember I grabbed that, that ring and I put that thing on my finger and uh, that thing stuck with me through thick and thin. I remember one time I played soccer at a game up at North Hall High School, which is way a long way from where we were in Gainesville. And I remember shaking a rock out of my, my flats, like my normal shoes. And so I remember taking off my cleats after the game, putting on my flats, shaking out a rock. And y'all, the next morning I was like, that was not a rock. <laughs> And I lit up, drove, and found it in the grass on the soccer field. You know, God just kept that monument there for me, doing what you meant to me. And I skipped school that day to do it. I had to. It just meant a lot to me. So I drove there and found it, you know. And just to spare you longer as a story, I was able to give that to Jennifer on our wedding day. And we stood in front of the altar with our pastor who was there. And right before we made our vows and stepped up on the platform, I gave her that ring. And, and you know what's beautiful is that that her, her dad had had the same conversation with her when she was in middle school. She turned around and handed me that ring that she had had. And I had to put them both in my pocket because she was in some dresses in her pockets. I remember being like, what do I do with these? Because I didn't know she was going to do it. It was kind of a surprise. Um, but I knew it, it was the case that you guys had through those, those years from 11 to 26 when decisions were being made, I had on my finger a monument. Of the covenant that I have made with God and made with my Father, and I carried that with me, and it was it was powerful in my life. And and I'm telling you, I think that monuments can be a beautiful thing that God will use. Someone asked me, "Do you have any family reminders?" And is it possible to prayerfully consider setting some up in your life? But I'll tell you this: 
the most important marker you can set up for your family, and I want you to hear me this, is your obedience to God. Uh, stuff is great, and I, and I pray I never lose some of the things that I pointed out. Even if I lose that Bible, I'll never forget my father's faithfulness. You know what I mean? Even if I lose that ring, I'll still know the story. Even if the markers get misplaced, people don't. And, and while Christ is the ultimate marker for us, God also intended us to work in families. And so for you who are families, aunts, uncles, grandparents, connected with families, plugged in like godparents, wherever it is in your life, the, the best marker you can set up for them is your character and your willingness to be, <clears throat> to be obedient to the Lord. I want to ask you, is there anything about your life and the way that you live that would cause the children in your life to walk up to you, just like the kids walked up to those 12 stones and say, Mom, Dad, Aunt, Uncle, Grandma, why do you live like you live? Why do you serve like you serve? Why do you give like you give? Why do you love like you love? Why do you do what you do? Why do you obey God like you obey God? And in those moments, you'll have the chance to get an answer and speak into those little hearts and to disciple the next generation. And that's important because of the fourth thing, and I'll wrap up. The fourth thing is that these 12 stones point to God's desire to be worshipped by all the peoples of the earth. I'm going to spend a moment here, but I don't want to miss this. Because if you think that God was only about the Israelites in the Old Testament, you'd be mistaken. God has always been about all the people groups of the world. When it says nations, when it says peoples, that word, we go back and look at the Hebrew, it's pointing to people groups, little tribes, little people groups all over the place. And you see this in verse 24. He does all of this, sets up the monument, make sure your kids remember, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever, and that you never forget these things. I genuinely believe that God desires our best evangelism is walking with God and being obedient to Him and doing these things. And He will give us opportunities, and we should pursue them hard to share the gospel, not just with our lives, but with our words. We should pursue opportunities like that. We should pray for them. We should work hard to weave our way into lives in our community that we can both represent the gospel and speak the gospel into their lives. We should pursue that intentionally. You really should. And I want you to know that the greatest thing at work here is that through your life, through your obedience, God will bring about questions in the hearts that went around that are going to point back to these things that we just talked about. And your life can be like these 12 stones. Now, you'll always be pointing back to the, the rock, Always be pointing back to Christ. But I want to ask you this as we kind of conclude here. And I want you to prayerfully consider this. Is your life like these 12 stones? Does your life serve as a reminder of God's faithfulness? The spectators of your life, are they reminded of the faithfulness of God? Does your life point to Jesus and his work on the cross? Or does it point to you? Does it point to Jesus? And thirdly, is, is your life a reminder to future generations? When generations look at your life, are they reminded of what God has done? And, and lastly, does your life reflect God's desire to be worshipped by every people group on earth? Is that something you're a part of? Is that obvious when somebody watches your life for any period of time? I want to say this. If the answer is no to any of those questions or to all of them, I want you to fight against the, the I guess the, the instant urge to start making promises or excuses to God, grabbing this thing. Don't don't run up to the river and start building a raft. Look to Jesus. Don't don't be like, well now I gotta like yes, God will lead you into battle. One, at, at some point you will lift up your sword. At some point you will step into battle ways you never imagined before. You're going to take risks. You're going to be doing things that feel crazy. You can't, you can't really process in the moment here. But this moment, it all begins. Every day begins with looking to Christ. They put that ark out in front of them, several hundred meters out in front of them, and they crossed a thousand meters out in front, and they, they would follow that. They followed Christ. And he was there in the middle. He was there on the other end. He was at the camp in Gilgal. 
He's always there. When they got sick, they raised up that, that serpent. It's always been look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Even Jesus looked ahead. That's what we do. Don't show that. So look to Jesus. You can't cross that river on your own. He is the only way. Come and die to self. Surrender to his grace. Surrender to his faithfulness. Repent of your sin. Do not in Christ. Put your faith in Jesus for salvation. And know that just like he stood in the middle of Jordan, he stood in our place and endured the punishment of God so that you could receive his reward. I pray that you'll come to Jesus and you'll allow your life to become a monument to his faithfulness, to Christ's work on the cross, to his heart for the nations, and it remind generations of his goodness. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you because you are good. And you are faithful. You've done it all, but you're going to require us to get out and go. And we don't know what all those things will be, but God, we come here before you now with eager expectation. And you called us to come and die first. To be baptized with you, to die, and then to be raised. So if anyone's going to follow you, to take up their cross and follow you. Father, we pray that you'd allow us to die to self. That you would resurrect whatever it is you choose inside of us. And redirect our life. Lead us to repentance where it's needed. But God, we pray that you would be reminding us constantly of your grace and your goodness, your faithfulness. Even in those moments where we receive your discipline. God, we pray that we can still walk in joy. Knowing that you have a plan. That you're leading us into victory. And that one day we will see you face to face. Amen. We want to thank you one more time for taking the time to listen to these messages that God's provided our fellowship. We believe he's doing something special among us and would love for you to be a part of it. We hope that you'll take the time to come and visit us in person someday soon. And we invite you to visit our website, covenantcommunitylj.com. There you'll find information on how to contact us if you have a prayer request or if there's a specific way we can minister to you and your family. Until then, God bless you.